You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. scripture reading is taken from 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 11 to 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, you may be seated. No rush. No rush. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you, praise team, for leading us in worship this morning. Thank you, Hannah, for... Where did Hannah go? She's around here somewhere. Thank you for that kid's moment as well. And uh, greetings. My name is Tim. I serve here as lead pastor. And thank you to everyone here, for everyone joining us online. Welcome. It's so good to have you. And uh, I want to begin by just a reminder that our annual meeting is happening this afternoon at 4 o'clock at First Congregational Church across the way. And so we look forward to seeing our members back there as we celebrate what God has been doing in our church and as we look forward to what he will continue to do in and through his people. I do have the humble privilege this morning of welcoming up our very own Karis Lancaster. So Karis, come on up here. Karis is coming on board as our women's disciple-making coordinator, and so we are thrilled to have you. You are well-known and loved by our church, and uh, also in the MDiv program at Trinity, so mad props there, I can tell you that. Um, But also, want to say uh, thank you to our women's team that has served so faithfully uh, during kind of the in-between time as well. So for Ashley Gilmore, think of Penny Russell, and uh, Catherine McClain. Thank you for your faithful service along the way as well. And so, Karis, we are thrilled to, to have you. We look forward to your leading and the team as well as then spirit. So, welcome. Can we welcome her? With- welcome. Awesome. And uh, I would love to pray for you as you, and just an encouragement to all of us too, please greet her today and uh, please be praying for her as well. And so you'll be hearing more as in the coming weeks and so forth of what women's disciple making will continue to look like for our church, but what a, what a privilege to have you on board. So welcome. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we can gather here together to worship you, to hear from your word We thank you for your servant, Karis, for her willingness to step up and to serve in this capacity, God. So we pray that you would go before her, God, that you would fill her with your spirit. You would help her just in those crucial conversations that she has and in getting to know the the women of our church and the ways in which you have already been at work behind the scenes. Father, we pray that you would propel women's disciple-making forward for us as a church. Father, that you would equip her Thank you for calling her to this role, and would we all be a part of the work that she does in prayerful support and encouragement of her along the way, Lord. Thank you for what you're doing in our church. We lift up our annual meeting happening later today. We pray that you'll go before that time. You'd be preparing our hearts as we steward the resources that you have 
you have given us as a church as we look, look to raising up new leaders within our church and to seeing the vision, God, that we believe you have placed on our heart. And Holy Spirit, would you illumine your word this morning? Would you inhabit the praises of your people? And would you help us to better grasp the heights and depths of your love for us? We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Karis. All right. Well, let's jump in here. That question I will not forget anytime soon, and that was my daughter asking, Daddy, what does that sign say? She was pointing at one of those yard signs here in our Evanston community, one of those multicolored yard signs. Perhaps you've seen them as well. She asked, Daddy, what does that sign say? It, you, you can probably picture one. It's, it starts off, in this house we believe black lives matter, that no human is illegal, love is love, and so on. And what struck me about those signs is that it's basically a posting of one's statement of beliefs. And in some ways, kind of an invitation into a conversation about what those beliefs mean for any, any given person. But it struck me, too, that it would be like if, if perhaps I posted the Apostles' Creed in front, of, in front of our house and invited people to dialogue around some of the concepts related to the Apostles' Creed. Well, Rebecca McLaughlin has written an incredible book on the subject called The Secular Creed. If you haven't checked that out, I highly encourage you to do so. I, I was going to bring my copy up here, but that's okay. I can't, I can't encourage you or recommend it enough. And what she does in that little book is engage at least five of these contemporary claims and what she does is she shows how Christians often approach something like these signs with a hammer, perhaps wanting to stake their own into the ground, or perhaps on the other end, wanting to take a hammer to a sign. Now, maybe figuratively, not, not literally, maybe in their hearts and their minds. But what she does and what she lays out is a third way, where we take up a marker instead of a mallet and engaging each one of those claims to see how they line up with Scripture and qualifying them, perhaps, marking them up, so to speak, as to what we can affirm as believers in Jesus Christ and what, what we cannot. But a broader question for us to consider is that as followers of Jesus Christ, how should we engage neighbors in a context that at times seems increasingly at odds with Christianity, and in some contexts, perhaps even growing in its antagonism toward Christianity. That is precisely the environment in which Peter writes this book, this book of this letter of 1 Peter. If you haven't already, please turn there. And last week in 1 Peter, in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10, we were challenged with what it means to, to live our lives and to build our lives around Christ, the cornerstone, to build our lives around him and to orient our lives around he who is the living stone, chosen by God and precious to him, Christ, our cornerstone. And the core truth we saw is that a life that embraces the living stone becomes part of God's spiritual house and part of God's chosen people, whose purpose is twofold, whose purpose is worship and witness, all because of the sheer mercy of God. We also explored in that passage eight what we might call identity markers as to what 
is true of those that are now followers of Jesus Christ. Identity markers like we are, we too are living stones, that we are built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, and the people of God. And then we unpacked that our purpose as God's people is to worship and witness precisely because of God's mercy. Well, starting here in verse 11, what Peter does is he enters what is the the main body of his letter, kind of turns the corner and centers on practical matters of how we are to live in light of our new identity as followers of Jesus Christ. And he explains how Christians should serve as foreigners and exiles. The ESV says sojourners and exiles, part of the inspiration for the, the series title for this look at 1 Peter. In the midst of a hurting and broken world that so often rejects the life-giving message of how are we to live as sojourners and exiles. Well, here's the bottom line for us this morning. As foreigners and exiles, we must abstain from sinful desires and maintain godly lives so that Jesus is displayed and God gets all the glory. So that Jesus is displayed and so that God is glorified. And in our time together this morning, we're going to explore two exhortations. An exhortation is simply a way of communicating that emphatically urges someone to do something. But before we dive into those two exhortations, there's one more identity marker that Peter sort of slips, slips there. One more identity marker, and that of as foreigners and exiles. As foreigners and exiles. He begins with dear friends, though, signaling this, this new section branching into the practical, uh, practical aspect. He, he t- kind of takes these lofty theological truths and brings them down to where the rubber meets the road. And he uses this phrase, as foreigners and exiles, I believe his intent is in kind of getting in this one last identity marker to remind us of who we are before fo- focusing on living godly lives in an increasingly post-Christian culture. So he focuses first on who we are and then how we are to live. If you remember that phrase, foreigners and exiles, has been a theme that we've seen in 1 Peter already. The word for foreigners means the state of being in a strange locality without citizenship. And it's first introduced in chapter 1, verse 17, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. And the word exiles means to stay for a while in a strange or foreign place. It's found in the very first verse, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces. But not only is it a prominent theme in 1 Peter, but it's also woven into the very pages of Scripture. God's people are called foreigners and exiles, and you see their wanderings like Abraham in Genesis 23. The psalmist emphasizes a life as temporary residence in Psalm 39. And in Leviticus 25, there's a reminder that everything belongs to the Lord and that we live as foreigners and strangers in what is His land, His land. Perhaps the most important occurrence of this concept is in Hebrews 11, verse 13. When the writer of Hebrews talks about the great giants of the faith, you know them like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and how they embraced God's promises while living in a land that was not their own. It says this, all these people were still living by faith when they died. 
They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Christians stand in a long tradition of people who have been called by God to be foreigners and exiles in strange lands. What does this mean, though? What does this mean to live as foreigners and exiles? Just to kind of dip our toes into this concept here, remember back to the the image that Peter first uses in chapter 1, verse 3. He uses an image to describe the transformed life, and it is that of new birth. New birth. Chapter 1, verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This new birth is born out of the electing and merciful purpose of God. This new birth is entirely new. It stands in contrast to the old way of life. Chapter 1, verse 18, the old way of life handed down by our our ancestors. And also the evil desires that we had in ignorance, the evil desires that enmeshed us. And in this new birth, it is a new birth into a living hope. A living hope. In the midst of where we find ourselves here and now, we are freed from the tyranny of sin and death and have a future home to which we are now journeying. You know, I've been greatly influenced by the writings of Miroslav Volf uh, on Christianity and culture. He's a Croatian theologian and professor at Yale. And on this topic, he writes this. He writes, Notice the significance of the new birth for Christian social identity. Christians do not come into their social world from outside seeking to accommodate to their new home like a second-generation immigrant might, nor shape it in the image of the one they have left behind like colonizers might, or establish a little haven in the strange new world reminiscent of the old like resident aliens might. They are not outsiders who either seek to become insiders or maintain strenuously the status of outsiders. No, Christians are insiders who have diverted from their culture by being born again. They are, by definition, those who are not what they used to be, those who do not live like they used to live. Christian difference is therefore not an insertion of something new into the old from outside, but a bursting forth of the new precisely within the proper space of the old, end quote. If I could summarize that statement, it's, it's as if he's saying we are insiders who, ex- who have experienced new birth from within our culture, from within our culture. That being said, I, I recognize that a lot of us deal with the additional challenges of trying to navigate cross-culturally. But suffice it to say that the point remains that we receive new birth as inhabitants of a particular culture. But the questions that we must wrestle with is which beliefs and practices of our culture should we, or maybe at cross purposes, with the cross of Jesus Christ? When viewed through the lens of Scripture, there are elements of our culture that come into conflict with our new identity. I had the wonderful privilege of discipling this man that comes to mind for me, and actually journeying with him from um, pre-conversion to seeing him come to faith in Christ and then grow in his newfound faith. Pre-conversion discipleship is a thing. Can I say that? <laughs> Pre- so, 
charting along with him, but one of the things in this man's life was that he was the, the founder and president of a particular, particular company. And he began to wrestle with how he ran his business in light of now becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. He began wrestling with the tension of, and everything he had, you know, kind of oriented around was like profitability at all costs, you know, um, kind of like a full steam ahead sort of, sort of an approach. And what he began to wrestle with was, what does my faith mean for how I treat my people, the people that work for the company that I, that I own? And also, he began to look at things, he began to look more closely at, at like, labor practices within his supply chain to see what was happening, you know, kind of popped the hood and to see what was happening in his supply chain. One thing that comes to mind, though, for me was that uh, in, a, in a particular time of hardship for his company, he knew, he, he was really wrestling with this, he knew that they were headed toward having to let a couple people go. But his newfound identity as a follower of Jesus Christ motivated him to contact, I still, this blows my mind, to contact some of his competitors and try to line up jobs for the people he knew he had to let go, such that when he walked into the meeting with them, he said, I'm so sorry to have to let you go, but we have a position for you across town at this company. (laughs) Amazing. These are the questions we need to ask, though. What are the beliefs and practices of the culture in which God has saved us that we might need to reevaluate, that might need to be transformed because of the gospel working in our hearts and in our lives. But then secondly, which beliefs and practices should we retain? Which beliefs and practices of our culture should we maintain, which are congruent with the cross? My wife and I were a part of the, the Human Trafficking Task Force of Southern Colorado for many years. And one of the things that we realized is that there were many that were a part of this task force that came with a strong sense of justice, not necessarily believers themselves, but wanting to see human trafficking come to an end. We quickly realized that we had a lot in common, and perhaps even that in that sense of, that strong sense of justice was perhaps the image of God marred, though it is kind of shining forth in these these individuals. But we realized that even though we had perhaps different motivations, we could work together to try to, to, try to bring an end to this evil. So what, is it, what are some of those beliefs and practices of the culture in which God has saved you that can be redeemed for His glory? I'm going to come back to that idea with another image uh, here, um, here in a little bit. But Well, Peter goes on to explain more of what it means to live as foreigners and exiles, with these two exhortations. And the first of them is, abstain from sinful desires. Verse 11. You know, again, I'm calling these exhortations because of that, I urge you. These are more than just a suggestion. In fact, the force of the text is, I strongly urge you. And the first one is, abstain from sinful desires. Peter recognizes that the pleasures of the world are enticing. And he instructs Christians scattered throughout these Roman provinces to abstain or to keep away from sinful or fleshly desires. And even though much of the world has changed since Peter wrote, the enticement of worldly pleasures still remain. Those of money, power, rank, privilege, influence. These sinful desires he describes as waging war against our souls. What a vivid image. 
waging war against our souls. There is a great soul struggle that is taking place. And in James chapter 4, James describes it as what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, that battle within you? Simple desires are a relentless salvo aimed at our souls. And yet many of us find ourselves grossly unprepared, grossly unprepared. Do you remember the, uh, the battle of Helm's Deep in Lord of the Rings, in the two towers, I think, in particular? In that climactic scene, the evil forces of wizard Saruman are uh, attacking the forces of King Theoden in that, that fortress called Helm's Deep. And like wave after wave of forces attacking Helm's Deep, our lives are being pummeled by battering rams. Our walls are being compromised by throngs of enemies. And lest we try to minimize them, Peter wants us to understand that sinful desires wage war against our souls with laser-like precision. And just when we think we've gained the upper hand, it's like another wave comes. Two takeaways for us to consider in this battle, in this, in this standing firm against the, those desires that wage war against our soul. That that we've been reminded of in the book of Ephesians as well is clothe yourselves, O oh church, clothe yourselves with Christ. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 13, 14 says, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Christians are called to put on Christ. This is a metaphor for putting on clothing of Christ that means not just imitating his character, but also living in close personal fellowship with him. The second part of the verse is also crucial. We need to constantly renounce the flesh and refuse to gratify its desires. But how can we do this? Scripture gives us more indicators, that is, of walking by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The only way to conquer the flesh is to walk by the Spirit, to pattern our very lives after the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit includes not only direction in life, but empowerment for life. The Spirit helps us make decisions and choices that are more in line with who God is and what He values. And the Spirit helps us to act with spiritual power to, uh, to abstain from sinful desires. But we realize, we quickly realize that we cannot do this on our own. We cannot do this on our own. We need to trust in the Holy Spirit to beat back the forces that wage war against our souls. And not only do we need the Spirit, we need, we need one another. We need one another. Galatians 6, 2 says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. I myself am grateful for a band of brothers that stand in the gap, that stand in the low places in my wall for me in prayer, in hard questions, and in accountability. We need each other as well. Well, following this negative exhortation, Peter gives the positive one, and that is to maintain godly lives. Not only abstain from sinful desires that wage war against our soul, but to maintain godly lives. Live such good lives among the pagans, verse 12. That word is actually Gentiles. It's, we might say, live, live godly lives among believers or those who are among unbelievers or those who are far from God. 
The good way of life here stands in contrast to the empty way of life that Peter has talked about earlier in chapter 1. And what Peter does is he wants us to understand that Christians will be accused along the way. Christians will be accused of many things. They will be accused of doing wrong, just as many are today. And in spite of this, one goal remains, that we would live godly lives so that Jesus is displayed in our lives and that God is glorified. Living godly lives so that Jesus is displayed and God is glorified. People will sit up and take notice of a life that is lived in faithfulness to God. That phrase, they may see your good deeds. God is not the only one who is watching. Christians are constantly being observed by people around us. And Peter urges Christians to live in such a way that could be recognized, by, recognized as good even by the standards of unbelievers. This is really fascinating. He understands that there is some overlap here between Christian and cultural values. He doesn't think simply in categories that view society as evil and Christianity as good. No, instead of condemning all of the beliefs and practices of the culture or getting people to separate or withdraw from it, Peter challenges Christians to live by the values of Scripture, to live by uniquely Christian values. And when those values conflict with culture, Christians should be willing to endure hostility. But for some who may express hostility themselves, in the process, this is mind-boggling, in the process, they may come to glorify God themselves. They may come to glorify God themselves. They too may encounter Jesus and come to glorify God. Living godly lives challenges the stereotypes about Christianity that are so pervasive in our culture. Living godly lives in the face of slander and false accusations may lead someone who is far from God to truly experience Jesus. You know, it is clear that Peter was affected by the teachings of his Savior, Jesus Christ. We've been hearing some of those notes along the way. Matthew 5, 16 says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The phrase day of visitation here at the end of, at the end of this verse reflects Old Testament language for God's coming day of judgment. Those who God rescues will escape judgment and experience new life with Him. The day of His visitation is coming. And so as a way of trying to encapsulate a few of these concepts I've been kind of laying out here, I wanted to share some of my own experiences in the Army. Now, some of you might be like, oh, man, he's talking about the Army again. <laughs> hopefully these are not, hopefully you've not grown weary with <laughs> some of the Army references, but it's a, it's a, deep, it's a deep and enduring part of, part of who I am for sure. And as, as many of you know, I served kind of early on in um, not only, I guess, you know, what, in what was called the War on Terror, for better or for worse, um, joined right out of high school, and I'll never forget, my very first day of basic, my report date for basic training was September 11th, September 11th, 2001, obviously changed the course of the military forever, but few years in, I found myself with the Army uh, going and playing in the sandbox. 
You can laugh at that. That's a, that's a euphemism, perhaps, that we <laughs> use in the Army is not so much playing in the sandbox, but being deployed to Iraq in, uh, in 2004. But what I came to discover is that God had to take me to the desert to radically get a hold of my life. God had to take me to the desert, and while there, I wrestled deeply with some things I was seeing face-to-face, right up close, and that is human suffering, big questions about why God would allow certain things to take place, basically seeing, seeing this right in front of me. But God saw fit to rescue me. He saw fit to build my faith planted firmly on the trustworthiness of Scripture, And he took that dark night of the soul for me and redeemed it and began using me in the lives of some of my fellow soldiers. You know, I quickly realized, though, that there were some aspects of the faith that were at, at odds with army culture. Can we just say that? Why not? At odds with the army culture. Things like there were there was a lot of promiscuity for instance. The use of, the constant use of foul and degrading language. A culture of covering up for other people. And perhaps even a value on pursuing rank, often by placing family on the altar in order to do so. The pursuit of rank. At the same time, there are many elements of the army culture that are compatible with Christian values. For example, Respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, courage, being willing to lay one's life down for a friend. In living out Christian values, I faced my fair share of ridicule at times, but I also saw God begin to use me in the lives of some of my fellow soldiers who who noticed my way of life, and began asking some really, really tough questions. Some really tough questions. <laughs> I remember, look, glancing at the clock, I remember being, um, being up in a, a guard tower at one point and hearing across the radio, Sergeant Allen, you're needed in the guard shack right away, and they sent like a replacement, somebody to come take my place in, the, in the, that particular tower. And so I double-timed it, you know, to the guard shack and burst in there. was like, you know, panting and out of breath. I'm like, what, what do you need? They're like, oh, Sergeant Allen, good. We have a question for you on creation versus evolution. I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> Not what I thought, but great. Not only did they ask amazing questions, they gave me the nickname Padre, <laughs> you know, meaning father or priest. I'll take that. You do not give yourself your own nickname, you know. You just pray for a good one. <laughs> so uh, I, I liked that one. I, I still enjoy being called that to this day. But one of the highest privileges I had was seeing some of my buddies come to faith in Jesus Christ themselves. And part of why I share this is because I think it captures several elements of what we're talking about here today. I was given a new lease on life from within the army, if that makes sense from within my culture. And as my relationship with God blossomed, I was confronted with elements of culture to reject that did not, that were at cross purposes with the cross, that did not align with his word. 
And I was confronted, too, with elements of my culture to retain, to lift up, to even to live out with new motivation, gospel motivation. And even though I faced ridicule from some, others took notice. And I hope and I believe saw Jesus displayed in my life and came to glorify God themselves. They came to glorify God themselves. So church, let us bear witness to the gospel in word and deed. Let us live in such a way that pleases God. Remember where we came from and also to be who we are as we are reminded of these identity markers of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Let us be who we are and living godly lives means giving the gospel flesh, displaying the gospel to a hurting and broken world that often lives at cross purposes with the cross. A world that so desperately needs the life-giving message of hope. Here's that bottom line once more. As foreigners and exiles, we must abstain from sinful desires and maintain godly lives so that Jesus is displayed and that God is glorified. Followers of Christ are called to navigate this world as foreigners and exiles, as we await the new creation in our journey toward home. And we have been given a twofold exhortation here of abstaining from sinful desires and maintaining godly lives so that Jesus is displayed and God gets all the glory. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for your living and enduring word. The word that you have given us here in 1 Peter, a word that is so challenging, but also motivating, reminding us of what you have done through your Son to radically reunite us with you. And so, Father, we pray for all of the grace and strength needed to indeed live as your word calls us to, both in abstaining from sinful desires, and maintaining godly lives. We recognize that we cannot do this without you, without the power of your Spirit at work in us. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, come. Illumine our hearts. Magnify Jesus. Would you be praised? Would Jesus be displayed as we give the gospel flesh and, and would God get all the glory? We pray this in the precious and matchless name of our Savior. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.